You see, God says he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, big pains in the neck, Christ died for us. God wanted to have a relationship with us. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Christ is whom you have sent. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Book of Romans, we are now in the applicational section, chapters 12 through 16. And for the past several programs, we've been looking at the topic of spiritual gifts. Our passage today is from Romans 12, verses 9 to 21. Today, Pastor Brogy looks at the connection between spiritual gifts and love and why we need to check ourselves to make sure we are truly exercising our gifts in the power of the Spirit and not in the flesh. Take the Word of God this morning, would you, and turn to Romans chapter 12. A few weeks ago, we turned a corner in our study of the book of Romans, having completed the doctrinal section, chapters 1 through 8, and the national section, chapters 9 through 11. We are now in the practical section of Romans chapters 12 through 16. And Romans follows the format that most of Paul's epistles follow. Having told us what to believe, he now addresses how it is that we should behave. You see, the Christian life combines both duty and doctrine. Our learning should always translate into living, because what we do believe should influence how we behave. And this is true not simply in our relationship to God, but it's true in our relationship to one another. And a right relationship with God will produce a right relationship with other people. And that's the focus of our text this morning, Romans chapter 12. We want to begin precisely where we left off last time in verse 9. Follow along with you in your Bibles. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Maybe you heard of that bus driver over 30 years ago whose job it was to transport mental patients, and he moved them from one facility to another. And just before he arrived at the facility, he decided he would stop into the local bar and get a quick drink, which was not only against hospital regulations, it was against state law. And while he was in that bar for five minutes, all 20 patients escaped. Well, he was in a flurry. His heart was in panic. He was only a half mile away from the mental hospital, and so he pulled up to the next closest bus stop, and he offered exactly 20 people a free ride. They all got on board. He drove through the gates of the mental hospital, and he said to the staff, now the patients on board all think that they're normal. That's why they're here, but just remember, they're very sick people. Now, the amazing thing is it took six hours for those innocent people to prove that they were normal. And I'm not sure who gets the award on this one, the medical staff who couldn't figure it out or those people who couldn't explain it. I mean, what would you have said to the staff? Listen, I'm not supposed to be here. I am totally normal. 
I really am a student at Clemson. I know you think I'm out of my mind for having gone there and I should have went to Carolina, but I am totally normal, believe me. I mean, what would you have done to have proven your sanity? What if you had to prove that you were a Christian? How long would it take? Six minutes? Six hours? Six days? I'm in church. I believe the Bible. God has saved me. Well, according to James, the declaration of faith without a demonstration of faith means very, very little. You could gather in this auditorium every Sunday, every day. You could leave here with a sandwich board on your back and verses written on it and say, I am a believer, and people may not believe it. And so God calls us to pursue godliness. And so what really is true godliness? I suppose it's like defining sanity. There's a lot of different definitions in people's mind, especially in our day. Now remember where we are here in Romans. He's been discussing practically how we are to live the Christian life because doctrinally he has been unfolding for us who we are in Jesus Christ and who God has made us by faith in Christ. And so in chapters 1 through 11, he has given a declaration of Christianity, even as it relates to Israel. And now in chapters 12 through 16, he's given a demonstration of Christianity. And verses like this are very, very important because we have people all over the place in our day who claim to be born again, but who have very little life change. And that should not totally surprise us because the Bible teaches as we move into the last of the last days, as Paul says to Timothy, they will be holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid, avoid, avoid such men as these. There's no shortage of religious confession here in America. And it may shock some that while some people claim to be religious, in God's eyes, they are spiritually dead. And it's not a new problem. It goes back into the Old Testament pages of Scripture. Amos, the prophet, if you've read his little book, hits these issues head on. Religion was booming in his day, but so was injustice. Isaiah, the prophet, in the opening chapter of his book, writes these words, Thus says the Lord, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast, your, your religiosity. They've become a burden to me. I'm wary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply play, prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. The Lord Jesus faced the same problem during his public ministry as he dealt with the ultra-religious and he told them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. They carefully, meticulously clean the outside, but inside they were dead. Even so, 30 years later, when Paul writes to Timothy, while it was true in Timothy's day, he said it will be especially true in the last of the last days. Men who will have a form of godliness, outwardly religious, but no genuine power. 
Religion without reality, form without power. In James' word, faith without works. Paul says to Titus of such people, they profess to know God. They say, I am a born-again Christian. But by their deeds, they deny Him. And so God wants us to combine godliness with power. And true religion happens when a person has been born again and out of that regenerated life from the inside out, new life begins to express itself. When Paul says to Timothy, avoid such men as these, what does he mean? Does that mean we don't hang around with sinners? Of course not. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Paul said it would be impossible not to hang with sinners. You'd have to leave the planet to do that. God has called us to go into the highways and the byways and reach sinners. But contextually, when he says avoid such men as these, he's talking about Christian churches that say they are born again, that say they are Christian even nominally, but have no genuine life. I was in a hospital yesterday in Florence, South Carolina, and talking to a dear friend, and I said, how's that? New church going up there in Greenville. It's only three or four months old. He said they already have 6,000 people in three and a half months. It doesn't surprise me because the pastor tells the people what he wants them to hear. And you can do and be just about anything you want to be in that church. And the people love it. A form of godliness, but they have denied its power. And so today I want us to think about what real godliness looks like in the pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of godly love that God calls us to. If you're taking notes, there's an outline there if you're here for the first time. And I have four simple points concerning godly love and what it looks like. First, godly love is pure. Godly love is pure. Look now, if you will, at verse 9. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Now think about the context. The progression of thought here is rather interesting. If you've been with us in the last few weeks, you know that the Apostle Paul in the first eight verses has been discussing the subject of spiritual gifts. And now he's discussing the life that, that, that flow as we exercise those spiritual gifts. Just exercising a spiritual gift in and of itself is not necessarily a mark of godliness. Even the devil, the great counterfeiter, can exercise spiritual gifts. When Paul wrote the Corinthians, he spoke of such people. He said, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. You see, they have deeds. They're just not godly deeds. People who have never met Jesus Christ. And so it is through a relationship with Christ that an inner life begins to unfold. Paul said to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. 
that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. If you read that verse contextually, the pronouns become clear. He, the Father, made Him the Son, who had never sinned, for Christ Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, and yet without sin. The one who knew no sin became sin for us on the cross. He bore our sin in His own body on the cross. He saw every wicked thought, evil action, deed, you and I would ever commit, and He took it upon Himself. The one who knew no sin became sin. Why? That we might become God's righteousness in Christ. If this Bible is Christ Jesus, and this watch is me, if I am in Christ, then I have God's righteousness in Him. And this morning, everyone in this room and everyone in the sound of my voice is either in Christ, covered over in His righteousness, and that's why in the New Testament, even the weakest, newest Christian is called a saint, Because sainthood is not based on performance because salvation is not earned. It is something that is received. And today you're either in Christ, covered over in His righteousness, or you're outside of Christ in your own righteousness that falls short. And if you die in that righteousness or He comes finding you in that righteousness, you will be forever in that righteousness in a place of unrighteousness that the Bible calls hell. But when you're in Christ, God the Holy Spirit is placed inside of you. He cannot come to live on the inside until you have received His righteousness. And then everything begins to change. And so Paul is addressing in the opening verses, brethren. That means brothers and sisters. People who have been born again. And now he's renewing our minds so that we can come to realize the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And what he does here... In Romans 12 should not surprise us because on each of the four major passages that deal with the subject of spiritual gifts, he does the exact same thing. He talks about that it's not enough to exercise your spiritual gift, but it must be exercised in a spirit-filled way that men might see our love. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12, the chapter opens, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. And then the entire chapter delves into the subject of spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, he says, pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gift. And the whole chapter deals with the subject. But sandwiched between chapters 12 and 14 is a passage that most non-Christians know. We call it the love chapter, much like they know Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is read at virtually every funeral you will attend. And 1 Corinthians 13 is read at virtually every marriage ceremony. We call it the love chapter. But in the context, he is speaking about exercising our spiritual gifts within the power of the Holy Spirit that men might see our love. And so the chapter opens with hyperbole, 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And then he concludes the chapter with these words, but now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Because faith will not be forever. One day faith will give way to sight and it will cease to exist. One day hope will give way to reality because that which we long for that is promised, we will experience. It will be done away with. But love, well, that's forever. 
So we're not surprised like in Ephesians 4, like in 1 Peter 4, like in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, that here in Romans 12, when Paul speaks to the subject of gifts, he moves from the subject of gifts to the subject of loves. Why? Because he knows it is possible to exercise a spiritual gift in a less than loving way. It's possible to live out your life and use the gift of the Spirit without being filled with the Spirit. And love is so important because that's what glues us together. That's what makes the body of Christ work in a harmonious fashion. Jesus said it is to be what characterizes his people. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. It's the badge of discipleship. Yet love is so fuzzy in our day. And people define it so differently. Notice how Paul describes it. Let love be without hypocrisy. The Greek word hypokritos comes directly into English as hypocrite. And it's actually two Greek words brought together that literally means a play actor. It was used of an actor in a Greek tragedy. Um, it, he would wear a, a false face. If you remember in Greek tragedies, there was no lights, there was no backdrop, there were no decorations. They just carried masks so that you could see what part they were playing. And Paul, in essence, here is saying, don't put on the mask of love while being unloving in your actions. Do not be an actor who's playing the role of showing love while doing otherwise. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Now, this word love is going to flow all the way through these verses. We're going to see it over and over and over again in different forms, but you won't miss it, I hope, this morning. This first word, love, is directly translated. It's the word that you often hear as agape love. We anglicize it, but it's agape, or agapao, the verb. Agape love. What is agape love? It is willful love. Sometimes it's used negatively of the world's love. Jesus said they love, they willfully choose their evil deeds so they will not come to the light. Most often it's used of God's love. Like in our marriages where we are to have a willful love, not simply a love based on emotion or attraction, but a love that is based on knowing what God wants us to do and then choosing to do it, a love based on the will. Even so, in the body of Christ, we are to have this willful kind of love. No fooling, no faking, no acting. Love without hypocrisy. True love doesn't say, hey, it's great to have you call me at midnight when you're thinking on the inside, you are so insensitive that you would call me at this time. True love doesn't say, it is great to see you when on the inside you're thinking, you're just a big pain in the neck. <laughs> you say, should I tell them that they're a big pain in the neck? Well, sometimes there is a place to speak the truth in love, but more often than not, we just need to examine our own wicked hearts and why do we view them as a pain in the neck? You see, God says he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, big pains in the neck, Christ died for us. God wanted to have a relationship with us. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Christ is whom you have sent. And so God loves sinners and so are we. We're to hate sin, but we're to love the sinner. God wants us to have love without hypocrisy. Let's read further into the verse. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor 
what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, there's not a single English word that translates the word abhor, and that's why in some of your English translations, it's rendered differently. Because if you're doing a word-for-word correspondence and translation, there's not a single word that captures the full nuance of the Greek. Yes, you could translate it, hate what is evil, but it includes much more than hatred. The word abhor means to loathe. Probably consider the greatest Greek expert of the last century, Mofart, translates it, regard evil with horror. It has the idea of loathing evil, of separating oneself from evil. Now you read that and you say, well, why would he write that to Christians? Why would he tell born-again people to loathe, to separate, and to abhor evil? For the simple reason when you get saved, you still have your fallen Adamic nature. And we live in a day, especially in the atmosphere of these last days, days of sexual permissiveness and days of sexual perversion, the days of Noah and the days of Lot, that Jesus said we characterize the last of the last days before the coming of the Son of Man. We live in such an atmosphere of evil, we can get used to that evil, the old frog in the kettle syndrome. And so the devil will try to convince us that we ought to manage evil but not abhor it. So as Christians, sometimes we schedule time for evil. We flirt with it. We see how close we can get to the flame of evil, but we don't abhor evil. We may not want to offend someone and take a stance for what is right, lest they think we're being judgmental. Sometimes we buy a ticket to go see evil. Sometimes we pay monthly to entertain ourselves with evil. Sometimes because we're so immersed in, it, immersed in it before long, we're applauding the girl that gets the man seductively or the man that seduces the woman. Businessmen give their cards and they invite people into evil. Christians will go home today from church and some will literally log on to evil. Before long, you don't loathe evil, you're laughing at evil. And the things that you will laugh at are not the things that you abhor. God doesn't want us to manage evil. He wants us to abhor with evil. We are to have a holy hatred for evil. A daughter came home from college and she told her mom about a particular movie she was going to see that evening and her mother was listening knowing that it was not a movie that Jesus would go to. And as she was mixing the salad... She reached over on the counter and took a can of garbage and dumped it in and started mixing it up. She said, Mom, what are you doing? You're ruining the salad. She said, I thought that if you would allow a little garbage into your mind, you would mind a little garbage in your stomach. You see, many times we don't really abhor evil. We may abhor getting caught. We may abhor the consequences of evil. When I was in the seventh grade, I'll never forget it, my first day there at junior high, and school was out and we were walking home. As we were walking home, there was a kid in my neighborhood, he was in the ninth grade, Paul. And Paul had taken this common kitchen product that I'll leave unnamed, and he was inhaling it. It was a food product, and he was inhaling it. And I was absolutely terrified and frightened to see how his body would react. I remember years later, I met him when I was saved, and and he was at the bottom of life, and I tried to witness to him. But he clung to evil so much, he literally 
spit at me and asked me to leave his presence. And the next time I heard Paul's name, he was dead on drugs. And so this particular company had lawsuits that were pending against them. And so they put a product on the label, death or serious injury if this product is inhaled. But it didn't seem to stop the liability claims that kept coming at the company. So some of their attorneys got together and said, what else can we write? What do people fear more than death or injury? And one attorney said they fear the way they look. And so they put a new warning on that sniffing this product, inhaling this product could disfigure your face. And it was true because nothing disfigures the face like death. And so they wrote, inhaling this product may cause facial disfigurement. And the abuse of it went way down almost to nothing. Now, it's kind of funny when I think about that. Because some people were not troubled by the possibility of death or injury, but this one consequence, the potentiality of being disfigured, it it scared them to death. What terrifies you about sin? Is it the ugly consequences of sin, the painful loss, the disease, the addiction? Is it death? You know, as a pastor, anyone who's in ministry today, you, you hear everything and you're no longer shockable. Every imaginable sin you think people could commit, you hear of it in a pastor's study. And it terrifies me because I repeatedly see the, the, the awful consequences and the heartache and the destruction that it brings. But as bad as the consequences of sin, God doesn't want us simply to abhor the consequences. He wants us to abhor evil itself. Why? Because He is so holy. But many Christians are not willing to pay that price. Now, that's the negative aspect to godly love. Abhor what is evil, but he's not done. He gives a positive aspect. Abhor what is evil, and then he says, cling to what is good. So true love turns from evil, but it doesn't simply turn from evil. It has to cling to that which is good. And that's important. God wants us to cling, to hold on to with all our might, that which is good. Now, the word cling is an interesting word, actually, because it's a word that's used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the marriage relationship. But what he says in this one verse, Jesus preached a whole sermon about, about abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. Hold your finger here for a second and turn to Matthew's gospel. You're in Romans. Just go back, and the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel, is the gospel according to Matthew. And turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. I want you to see a classic illustration of love that hated hypocrisy and love that clung to that which was good. And the illustration comes from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, who, of course, was the personification of perfect, non-hypocritical love, who abhorred what was evil, who clung to what is good. And he's addressing in this chapter, if you remember, the religious leaders of the day. Notice how the chapter opens. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. That is, they teach the Torah, they teach the law of Moses, they teach the Bible. Now look at verse 3. Therefore, All that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. When we are exercising our spiritual gifts fully in the power of the Spirit, 
we will do so in godly love, and godly love abhors evil. Next week, as we continue our study of spiritual gifts from Romans 12, we'll focus on the positive side of godly love, clinging to that which is good. To listen again to our message entitled, The Pursuit of Godly Love, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM60. You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling that same number, 877-787-7478, or give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous contribution plays a role in providing biblical teaching and in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our pursuit of godly love. Join us then as we search the scriptures.